You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, she has the distinction of being the first female to be promoted to the rank of general from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, she is also uh, an author. The title of her book is 24-7, The First Person You Must Lead Is You, uh, and she has been a trailblazer her entire career for females, not only in the Army, but everywhere else. And her name is Brigadier General Retired Becky Halstead, and she joins us on the podcast. Ma'am, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate it, Mark. All right, so let's start from the very beginning. You've had a very long and distinguished military career, but how did it get started? How did you end up at West Point? Well, I thought I was going to go to Ithaca College and play sports. That was my dream in high school. And then my mom read about the military academies being open to women in 1976, and she just read out of the newspaper. She said, this sounds just like you. And when I turned around the room, there was nobody else in the room but me. (laughs) My brother gone. They split. So I said, well, I... I don't know anything about that. You know, we don't come from a military family or anything else. So my mom's the one who we call her the Renaissance mom, and you know, she's a dental hygienist. My dad's an IBM engineer, and anyhow, so she's the one who kind of planted that seed. And so I did all the application and that whole process. And candidly, uh, once I started the process and learned more about the academies, I was quite certain I would never be accepted. So I wasn't too worried about it. Um, thought my plan was still in place. And then in March of my senior year, I actually got an acceptance letter from the United States Military Academy. So needless to say, I was um, quite scared. I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of like, it's exciting. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, my gosh, now I have to go. I mean, you don't say no when you get accepted. So, um, And that's how I got there. What was your reaction to the letter? and What were your parents' reaction? Well, my uh, my grandparents lived right behind us, and so when the big yellow envelope came to the house from the United States Military Academy, uh, my grandfather drove down to the high school and had me uh, called down to the principal's office. It was really pretty funny because when the call came into my 12th grade English class, you know, Mr. Smith says, uh, Becky, you need to go to the principal's office, but that wasn't, an, you know, I, that happened quite often. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so I went down to the principal's office, and my grandfather was standing there, and he goes, open it, open it, you got something from West Point. I said, Grandpa, I get a lot of things from West Point. It's always, you know, one more thing I have to do or fill out or whatever. So I I just didn't even think it would be an acceptance letter. And when I opened it up, I mean, literally, I don't remember at that point in my life ever having been totally surprised. You know what I mean? I just, it's like I had to read it twice. And then he took it home to my parents. I actually don't remember my parents, uh, you know, their response, because I I don't think I was there when they read it. But the whole town just kind of, you know, I come from a little town in upstate New York with no traffic lights. You know, I say my, my, my motto is I'm just a country girl from a town with no traffic lights, which come to find out it's kind of like the majority of our military, right? You know, we're kind of from just out there doing our thing, and we joined the military. But um, So no one in my school had ever gone to West Point and graduated. So it was a pretty big deal. It wasn't even like it was a big deal because I was a girl. It was just a big deal all around. So that was pretty exciting. I mean, I always tell people the best day of my life 
was the day I left home, you know, on a big high. And the worst day of my life was my first day at West Point. <laughs> <laughs> really? So what made it the worst? I was just going to ask you, what were your expectations heading in? Why was it the worst day? Well, I had dated uh, one of my uh, high school boyfriends. He went to the Air Force Academy. So he had done a really great job of, you know, telling me how, you know, the hazing goes and, you know, spit shine in your shoes. He taught me how to do that before I got there. And, you know, so I, I kind of felt like, okay, I, I know it's going to be hard. Um, I know every conversation is going to be one-sided, um, and I, I can do this. But it, you can't even comprehend what it's like until you get there. And and it was just a matter of, you know, you, you saw everything be taken away. You know, no, no ability to call home. Uh, people can't visit you. Uh, it is all one-sided conversations. There's a lot of yelling and screaming. And I was physical. I was an athlete in high school, but it was beyond physical. I mean, I, I discovered muscles that I didn't even know existed, right? I mean, my <laughs> toes, my fingers hurt. So it was, I mean, it was very physical. Um, and, yeah, I'm five foot one and a half. And so, you know, I mean, I got, I got chosen. I got volunteered for everything. And some people will say, well, that's because you're a woman. I said, well, I'm sure that played into it, but it also was because I was five foot one and a half, you know. And so it was just, it was hard because all my all my friends, you know, they're on summer vacation, they're going to regular colleges, they're drinking beer on Friday night, you know. I mean, it's just like all your freedoms are taken away, and then what you do is you earn them back kind of one freedom at a time, you know. Uh, eventually you can actually walk across, the base and and talk to each other and you know i mean it's but you you lose all your privileges for a year and so it, it takes a lot of discipline at the end of the day is what it is and so it's just harder than i expected well I, let me ask you because i'm not sure I've, much you've gone back to west point since but uh, i mean i was through rotc i got my commission so i didn't have to deal with any of that but is it still the same way now as far as those freedoms and liberties taken away no it well it is similar in that um you still have all that taken away early on, but you get it back a lot faster. So, ah. so we went the whole first year, you know, pinging down hallways. You could only walk on one side of the hallway if you were a freshman, a plebe. Uh, you know, you had four answers, yes, sir, no, sir, no, excuse, sir, sir, I don't understand. You know, you ate square meals in a mess hall. You went to three meals a day. So we did all that for the entire first year uh, and only got to go home for two weeks at Christmas. That was our only break. Um, and so that part has been ratcheted way back. I mean, uh, they have a tough beef summer. Um, and and there, it's still, you know, the first year is still the hardest. But most of the old grads would say, you know, well, it wasn't, it's not as hard as when I went through. And it isn't. But, you know, it, it, isn't, it wasn't as hard in 1977 than it was, you know, 20 years before me either. So I think you have to... The, the military schools have to adjust in order to keep kids who still wanting to come, right? You know, right. so I mean, think about it. We didn't even have cell phones then. Sure, I yeah. Didn't have cell phones their first year. You know, I was shocked when I saw that, right? Because you know, a we didn't even have cell phones, but our phone privileges were stand in a hallway, edit attention, wait for the telephone booth, and you got to call only on weekends. You know, and that's if you made it actually into the booth. You know, you might wait your entire time off and not make it even into the booth to make the phone call. So, yeah, so it's harder, but it's still hard, and it's all relative to how our society has advanced. 
Right. So let me ask, when you look back on your four years at West Point, what stands out to you the most, and what was difficult about being a woman in West Point at that time? Well, what stands out for me the most is this whole concept of discipline, you know, self-discipline, that, you know, and, and that you can make it through, but you better lead yourself through it because, you know, nobody's going to coddle you, um, and this whole idea that, you know, I better recognize that I have strengths and I have weaknesses, and I need to work on my weaknesses, and I'll always have them, but I need to work on them, and I need to, you know, just understand that as an individual. Um, now, you know, early on, I tell everybody, no matter whether you're a male or a female, when you enter West Point, the upperclassmen are looking for your weaknesses, right, because they want to, they want to, they, they're going to haze you on your weakness. You know, maybe you uh, have buck teeth or maybe you have, you know, they're going to find something about you that they are going to just crush you with. Well, I, I tease a little bit that for, for the women, that was it. That was easy. They didn't have to look too hard. You know, they, the upper class, upper class saw that that you were a woman as being the weakness, right? So, mm-hmm. But they did that to everybody. So it's not like you were totally singled out. And I, and I think the hardest part about being a woman at West Point is I think there's even a, a greater degree of loneliness because there aren't very many of you. And, you know, you have your roommate, obviously, is going to be a woman. But if you even want to, to have a conversation with your male classmate, you have to keep your door open to your cadet room because now you have a male and a female inside that room. Mm-hmm. Well, just as soon as you did that, any upperclassmen that went by went, oh, look at that, door open. Let me just walk in. What's going on here and there? And then the hazing just began. So a lot of the guys... You know, they didn't, They don't even want that, so they just stay away from your room, right? They say, so it's hard to get that camaraderie and teamwork that you know is so important. Um, but, you know, eventually you do over the four years, and I'm still very, very close to a lot of my male classmates, more of my male classmates than female classmates, candidly, because, you know, I end up spending up my whole uh, career in the military, and, and none of the other women in my cadet company, I was the only career person but um I, yeah so i mean it's but it is hard for everybody and i think that's probably pretty much understood like boot camp right right and this is going to seem sort of like a loaded question and i would actually love for somebody to do a study on this because as i said i, I got my commissioning through rotc there's three commissioning sources for those who aren't familiar west point is one a military academy rotc the reserve officer training corps which you get with your college education and then you can go to officer candidate school which is for people who have already enlisted into the military and then become an officer. I'd be curious to know of the three commissioning sources, you know, I guess either demographics or, you know, demographically or whatever, how the success rate goes. And I guess my loaded question is, how do you feel over the course of your career as you've run into other officers and other people that you have trained the, that West Point prepares you compared to the other commissioning sources? Well, I, I have absolutely no doubt that West Point prepared me. Um, I can't, I, you know, so I, I feel very confident in that. But I also had a lot of people who I served with who were my bosses or who worked for me that were from the other commission, commissions. And, and candidly, um, they, were great, they were great men and women, too. So I, I think the, the thing is, is that our commissioning is our foundation, right? I mean, that's just the beginning, just like any other college. It's a foundation. And there are a lot of 
kids out there who don't do well in college who end up doing really well, successful in the, uh, you know, in the corporate sector or in the military. So, you know, I, I laugh a little bit about that because academically I was what we call 2-0 and go, right? So academically I did what I needed to to get through, but I was not a star student. Star is top 5%. Um, you know, so but there are a lot of star students who do not end up being in the military for a career. So I think, you know, I, I there are studies out there, by the way. Oh, there you are. Can, you can find them where it'll it'll give you an idea of attrition rate and all the rest of that. So, you know, um, and I don't know statistically what what that is. I I was curious at one time, like statistically, how many of the of the general officers or West Point grads or brigade commanders or whatever, but. Um, I don't. I don't think statistically it probably tells us enough to say. Well, we really don't need that source of commission. Right. No, and I, I wasn't even trying to allude to that. I was just curious because oh, I no, mean, I look. Yeah, but I mean, it is a great question. Uh, it's it's one that you know, candidly, though, there are a lot of people who do like to allude to that. You know, like Congress, right? Like, do we really need those schools? Sure. And I think the statistic or the the thing that sometimes gets missed is. Well, how many how many folks went through ROTC that did not get commissioned, but then turned out to be incredible uh, servants to our nation? Anyhow, maybe in public service, or even just being you know you know working for Apple and inventing something, right? Right. And I always tell people that the military academy to me is really not a military icon; it's a national icon because when you look at the at the leaders that. West Point or the other academies, specifically for me, West Point, has produced to become leaders in our nation, it's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, I mean, because that's what we're learning. We're learning to be leaders with character and competence. And um, candidly, as you well know, we need that just as much in the public sector and commercial sector as we do in the military, right? Yeah, absolutely. You said it. And, and I mean, our, we figure that the commander-in-chief is, is always going to be a civilian, you know, pretty darn important that uh, this whole concept of leadership is is taught and practiced, and you know, so. Well, that's what I tell I told people at election time. I said, vote for the person you think is the best leader because that quality is the one that uh, will permeate through all branches of the government. But I, I I bring back the you know the point about West Point. I, I can remember vividly. The people that people I've served with, you know, from the rank of lieutenant up, that tell me they go to West Point, and I look at them and go, "How did you ever get in that place? Like you, you do not act or look like somebody who ever got into West Point." And then there are other ones who are just shining stars. They just you, they fit the model, they fit the mold, so you get a wide variety, and that's kind of where my thought process was. You do, and and I mean, I you know, I again certainly ran into that even at the academy, right? So maybe you know, academically, I I probably just squeaked in. But, you know, I was also a Jane of all trades, right? I was pretty active in my community. I was an athlete, you know, real involved in my church. And so I was very well-rounded. And I, what I sometimes have wondered is, have we done the study of really looking at not just the statistics, but for those who don't continue in, uh, maybe even stay at West Point, or those who stay at West Point, do their five years, but then get out, have we looked at really... Um, maybe the whole selection process, because this is something that I, I tried to change my thinking on when it came to explosive ordnance, EOD school, because I think it takes a very unique person to want to go to EOD school and put on that suit and dismantle bombs. And we had a very high attrition rate out of EOD school. And so, you know, I really, I really um, challenged my leaders to go, 
look, we need to look at the entrance test. We need to look at, because we're obviously not picking the right people. So there's something about our analysis of, of, of accepting them into the school that we're not getting right. So if we could take the ones who are successful and figure out what is it, right? Because, um, again, I'll go back to the stars. A lot of I, – I would love to know the statistic of all the people in my class that were fi, uh, top 5% that wore stars, you know, on their collar, how many of them served a whole career or, be, you know, served a career and became a general? Because, see, what happens is when we're choosing people to come into the academy or to the ROTC programs, pretty much everything's on paper, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I forgive the percentages, but it's very high that the kids coming into West Point are either number one or number two in their high school class. Well, there's a lot of kids that are number one or number two in their high school class that really shouldn't be in the military, you know? Makes sense. I mean, physically, they don't have the maybe the, the, the stamina, et cetera. So it's, it's hard. I mean, if we had the perfect formula, we'd be doing a lot better in terms of uh, attrition and everything. But, um, yeah, it, it is crazy how you'll meet somebody and go, sure, really, you went to West Point? Or, really, you're in the military? <laughs> Well, you you graduate from West Point, and much like everybody else who starts out their military career as a lieutenant, you you don't know what the future holds. Ultimately, you end up with the rank of Brigadier General before you retire. Was there a point there, the the many years in between, where you realized that this was something you were going to do for a career and that you wanted to go as far as as you could possibly go? Well, okay, so I I think I probably knew I was going to do this as a career for sure, right around the 8- to 10-year mark, you know, just because, you know, I'm, 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 an in, I'm an engineer by trade, so mathematically, hey, I'm, I'm already halfway to retirement. Why would I get out now? Right. Ten years are going to go by so fast. So for me, it was more of a, a very rational decision that I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing well in the military. I'd gotten promoted early to, to major um, so, you know, I was already, I was just doing, I was doing well in that regard, but I liked, I liked it. I, I, I had two company commands. Um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the people most. I, I, I liked being a logistician, uh, and being in the ordinance corps, but what I loved most was the whole leading aspect of it. Okay. I, I loved the chaos. I loved solving problems. I loved seeing kids come in that, you know, that was the last resort for them, and they come in the military, and it changes their life, and they, they become, you know, really credible young men and women that see their own potential. I love that, right? So I knew I would stay for a career easily between eight and ten years. Um, candidly and with full transparency, so many people would say to me, oh, man, you're going to be a general, or they'd write that on my OER or whatever. I'm like, and I would just think inside, you know, inside words, well, I just want to enjoy being a major right now. Like, don't put that pressure on me, right? Or I just want to enjoy being a lieutenant colonel right now. And, like, you're getting ready to go into battalion command. I mean, when I was going into battalion command in Hawaii, I was so excited about going into battalion command. But people were already talking about me being a brigade commander and a general. And I'm like, hey, let me let me just do what I need to do now, prove myself now, enjoy what I'm doing now. So more people talked about that than I did. And Candidly, when I became a colonel and I took my brigade command at 10th Mountain uh, in upstate New York, um, that's probably, as I, I got to the end of my two years of brigade command and I'd been to Afghanistan, you know, then I realized, okay, 
I probably stand a good chance of making general officer, you know, because I've had some early promotions, and I now I've been through all these commands. So do I want to stay and see what that all means and see if it comes about, or do I just want to go ahead and retire? So I didn't have the same sense of, oh, I'm not leaving until I'm a general, or I'm going to be a general someday. I, I just I didn't even allow myself to really think that until I was already halfway through my brigade command. And then it was more of not so much about being excited about it, it was do I want that responsibility, um, you know, because I think you better want the response. If you want the ceremony, you better want the responsibility. Well, I think that's very lucid because the general thought process, I would think, by most people is that everybody in the military is a go-getter. Like everybody wants to – the concept of rank and achieving it lends itself to saying, I just got to keep going as far and as fast as I can up the, up the ladder until I get where I can. And I think it's, it's, very, it's very just refreshing and illuminating to hear that that thought process came into your mind because – I don't think a lot of people think about that. They just take what's next and what's given to them and don't say, am I really ready for this responsibility? Yeah, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in self-development. You know, what I, what I try to express to people is, you know, people focus on the, oh, my gosh, well, you're a lieutenant colonel and you got promoted below the zone and blah, blah, blah. You know, they're, they're, they're focused on all the glory of these things. And I would be telling them, okay, I got that, but I'm focused on, now, you know, I'm three years younger than all my peers, or I'm five years younger than all my peers. What that means is I have that much less experience, but I'm about to go in and take command, you know, of the same level of responsibility as they're my peers by rank, but they're not my peers by numbers of years of experience. And so to me that meant there's a lot of work I need to do to make sure I am ready. And why? Because the the folks that we lead deserve the best of us, right? And so I never wanted ever for, you know, my my soldiers to go, well, you know, they promoted early, but she wasn't ready, you know? I mean, I, I, I just would have been mortified of that. So I, I spent a lot of time throughout my almost three decades in the Army always preparing myself. You know, if you look at it, like I have every steno pad since I was a lieutenant, all my leader notebooks. And wow. what I would do in the back of my notebook, and I, I have a Harvard Business case study that I shared this with. It's kind of was kind of fun. And um, in the back, I would say, okay, so when I'm an 03, which is a uh, captain, right? When I'm a captain, in the back, I have my I have my my uh, 04 notes. If I ever get to be a major, or, I mean a lieutenant colonel, right? Here, I mean major. Sorry about that. Get my, get my numbers mixed up here. I'm really confusing your audience. But in the back of my <laughs> notebook, I always put, if I get the next level of rank, here are things I want to do or I don't want to do. Because I would watch. As a captain, I'd watch all the majors. And I would go, wow, I like the way he or she does this. So that was smart. And I didn't want to lose it, so I put it in my notes. Or I'd say, whoa, I, if I ever grow up to be a major, I do not want to be like that. So I... So, and so when I was a major, I looked at lieutenant colonels. I was a lieutenant colonels. I looked at colonels. And so I have all these notes, and, and I was preparing myself all along the way if it happens. But I, I don't think I really ever had that attitude so much as when it happens, right? Like, because anything can go wrong. You can get ill. Anything can go wrong. Sure. And it really struck me once when I was counseling a, a gentleman who worked for me. And I was... Uh, a, I brought him in, and, you know, his OER, his uh, rating, his official rating, 
um, I would say was was good. It wasn't wasn't bad, wasn't great. It was just good. And he says to me, you know, ma'am, is the uh, rating going to keep me from being promoted? And I said, well, no, this specific rating isn't going to keep you from being promoted. But if all of your ratings by everybody you work for look similar, then you're not going to get promoted because, you know, you haven't peaked ever. And and so, you know, you had to be fair to explain to him what that meant. And he said to me, you know, well, I, 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 I have to get promoted or I, I won't be the man that I should be. And I said, oh, don't ever, don't ever, um, uh, what's the word I want? Um, like judge yourself based on a rank. You know, don't make that assessment because, you know, there's a whole lot of people who are way more than you and I will ever be that have lesser rank, you know, don't don't make that be the judgment call. Does that make sense? Am I? Mm-hmm. No, I'm with you. Yeah. So anyhow, I digress. Well, I want to go back to a moment um, to your your time in Afghanistan um, and when you were there. I assume this is obviously all post 9-11. Um, and yes, yes, yes. what was what was it like going there? What rank were you, first of all, when you got there? at Fort Drum. I was a colonel. I was a brigade commander. And 10th Mountain, as you know, went into Afghanistan in the spring of uh, 2002. So 9-1-1-2001. So we left. uh, We had a battalion. We had an infantry battalion that was called forward right away as part of the Ready Brigade. And uh, that battalion went up into Uzbekistan with the Special Forces and then down into Afghanistan, and then the call came for the whole the division to go, the division headquarters and another brigade, and I was the support commander, the discount commander. So in uh, December of 01, I went up to Uzbekistan with the, with the ADCS, so I was a colonel, and I went up there with the general and a major. We kind of were the recon, if you were, the advance party, uh, for anticipating the 10th Mountain would get its orders. Uh, but then I went back to Fort Drum uh, because we weren't going to be deploying the we weren't going to be deploying my brigade because they already had logistics over there from the 82nd down first Coscom at Fort Bragg. So I went back to Fort Drum, but then when my commanding general got over there uh, to Bagram in the the spring offensive of uh, 2002, uh, Operation Anaconda, yes. you probably mm-hmm. know that. Uh, he, he called me and said, I want you to come forward. I want you to help me establish logistics over here. So I actually kind of, my, my, my brigade was back at Drum, and then I flew into Afghanistan to do that. But I was, I was only there for a very short period of time because I went back and changed command and went on to my next job. Gotcha. And for those listening, when General Halstead talks about Logistics, that's all the maintenance, uh, all the supplies, and all the transportation assets in the theater of operations that uh, essentially you'd be in charge of just to make sure that the, all the units who are the guys who are pulling the triggers and all the people up front on the front lines have everything they need to include medical supplies and all that nature. So that's just that when you say logistics, that's what we're referring to. Just it's a whole mess of things. Um, so you didn't stay in Afghanistan long, but you did deploy to Iraq in support of our Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, in 2004 and 2005. I have my dates correct, right? Uh, 2005 and 2006. Okay, so we were there at the same time. Wow, that's weird. Um, I was there from 05 to 06 as well. 
you were in charge of Third Corps, uh, the Third Corps Support Command. I, I want to ask you, because so much of what we focus here on the podcast has to do with a lot of things that go on on the ground level. When you work for Corps Support Command, you kind of have a 30,000-foot view of things. Uh, and we talk a lot with other guests about you know whether we felt like we were winning or losing things on the ground level and everything else. What was your view like from a, a core level, and how much worry did you feel like we were accomplishing while you were there? Well, so I I appreciate the thought that you know that I'm kind of at the strategic level because I am at the strategic command because you know it's a commanding general, the third corps core command, but. And within that command are over 200 plus size companies that are doing tactical operations 24 seven, right? Mm-hmm. So even though my position is a very strategic position, the work of the 20,000 know, people in my command operating out of 55 different bases across Iraq is very tactical. I mean, right. They're running convoys. You know, we put 3,000 trucks a night out on the road. Um, you know, so it, sometimes it, it, I think people don't realize that, you know, it's not like I was a staff officer sitting in Baghdad. You know, I was a, an operator, a commanding general with kids that are out there doing tactical operations every single day, getting attacked, you know, every single day. So, so you know, the whole concept of are we winning or losing is, you know, that's a tough one because, you know, we, we lost a lot of soldiers over there and, you know, I always tell everybody, you know, the real heroes are not the generals at the top. The real heroes are our men and women that are out there kicking down doors and, you know, running gun trucks and delivering supplies and doing all the rest of that on IED-laden roads. So, you know, when you when you attend, you know, a memorial service, it's just about every single week for a year, emotionally you go, oh, my gosh, we're losing, right? I mean, emotionally, right? Because now... Your, your heart and mind are right down there at that that tactical level. And I, I attended every memorial service, no matter where it was in Iraq. I was in Iraq. One of my folks, or a team that we were co-located with, that's what I did. Because that was so important. And those days, those moments, you know, you feel like you're losing. Um, but at the strategic level, when you're sitting at the table with, division commanders from the Iraqi side or brigade commanders from the Iraqi side. And I had three motorized uh, regiments from the Iraqi army under our command. When you sit and over a period of a year and you see the way that they improve and advance and whatever, then you, then you have those moments where you go, okay, we're making a difference or, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're making progress. You know, if I sat at the, when I sat at the table and talked to the gentleman who ran you know, the, the, the radio and the newspaper for the SUNY Triangle, and he's on cloud nine because now every other day he can write. One day he's writing for the Sunnis, and the next day he's writing for the Shiites, and someday he's going to be able to write about the Sunni and the Shiites in the same paper. When you, when you experience that sort of emotion then at the strategic level, you go, okay, we're making progress, right? So I, I don't have an overall feeling of, you know, we were winning the whole time or we were losing the whole time. But I did have an overall feeling that that's what we were asked to do to go there and serve, and that's what we did, and we left it in a better – we left it better than what we found it um, within our own units. And, you know, that's, that's the way I've always felt. Well, and, I, and that's so difficult because I stay in touch with family members who lost 
you know, a son or a daughter, and, um, you know, they, they they doubt it sometimes, right? You know, was there, was the, the cost of their child, you know, was it worth it? You know, was it, and that's difficult, very difficult. And let me, I guess winning and losing was a bad, I was kind of just getting, it's a bad way to phrase it, bottom line, because as somebody who's been there, yeah, I, I can, I think you did it much more eloquent than I did as far as, you know, winning and losing is in layman's terms on a day-to-day basis, but there are seminal moments. I remember in the first elections, that was a big day. Like, I just remember seeing how proud my Iraqi soldiers were. That made me feel proud, like we were winning on that day, and there were other days that we weren't. But I'd like to go back to, for a moment, some of the, the, the ceremonies and the toughness that you had to go through. So you were visiting, you were you were going to these memorial ceremonies, you say, about one a week. Um, give me some perspective on the first one you went to, towards one, towards the end of your deployment, do they get any easier? Or is it harder because you're sitting here going, oh, my God, it's another one of these things. When is it going to end? Like, kind of talk me through emotionally how all that went for you. Uh, it does not get easier. Um, if anything, in a way, it gets harder because, uh, well, the very first one I went to, um, you know, the, uh, the young man was killed the day before I took command. But as you know, once you take command, it's your command. Right. So we were still working through, you know, the investigation, all the, you know, what happened. Uh, you know, and I was talking to the family on the phone. Um, you know, so, it, you know, I, I, I always consider uh, that young man and his family as part of our command because, you know, I, I was still dealing with it when I, when I took the flag, you know, from my predecessor. So... So, you know, I mean, I remember that very vividly. And um, and the thing is, is that even though we investigate, even though we emphasize discipline, even though all these things, with every single uh, death, you, you um, assess yourself very, very hard. Could I have done something different? You know, especially when, especially when the enemy is sometimes ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you get a call in the middle of the night, and you and, and the call is, is it goes almost as simple as this, ma'am. Uh, we had a soldier killed tonight, and part of a convoy. And as uh, as a they, they as the vehicle was rounding a, a curve in the road, uh, it rolled, um, and three soldiers walked away, and one was killed. Now you know, within about. 60 seconds, maybe 30 seconds, maybe 10 seconds. The, the reason why that soldier was killed was because he probably either didn't have his helmet on or he didn't have a seatbelt on, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, didn't have a seatbelt on. Oh, and oh, by the way, senior occupant of the vehicle, a sergeant, whose responsibility is to make sure everybody has their seatbelt on, has their helmet on, has their, you know, their weapon locked and loaded. So it's, it's I almost, for me, it was harder. It was definitely not easier. Harder as I went because... You beat yourself up and you go, how, how, what other ways can I communicate to soldiers all the way down to that lowest level through 200-some-plus company commanders, 27 battalion commanders, you know, all the brigade commanders? How, what else can I do to get the message down there that this concept of daily personal discipline can mean the difference between life and death? And when it's death like that, guess who the enemy is? Now we're the enemy. So, yeah, for me it got harder. Um, you know, and, and I, I carry dog tags 
uh, with me everywhere I go. Um, I do a lot of speaking on leadership now, and and uh, you know, on the fronts and the backs of those dog tags, listed every name, rank, date of my soldiers killed over there, and um, you know, and it just uh, was tough. Uh, doesn't doesn't get any easier. Um, but I want to remember. I want to remember them. I want to tell their stories. Um, I want every bit of their life to have meaning. You know, long after they were here, and and candidly, sometimes I've I've used those to try to help uh, kids who are suffering with PTSD. You know, because there's, there's so many, and I do as much as I can with some not-for-profit work. Um, but it, I started right there in Iraq when you know a soldier in a convoy who lives and his buddy gets killed. You know, and you know they just they can't really bring themselves out of that. And I'm like, look. I can't even imagine how hard it has to be to know that the the gunner sitting right above your head, your friend, who volunteered to be on this convoy and got killed, why he got killed and you didn't. But here's what I do know. You are still alive. So live for him, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, live a life that honors his life. Don't get in this foxhole of, of pity and waste your life because that's a slap in the face, you know. And um, and candidly, I I kind of translate that even down to things like you're about to take battalion command, right? Yep. And when, if I were if I were uh, officiating your change, I would tell you that when I handed that flag to you, I would say, uh, Mark, command this battalion. For all of those other lieutenant colonels who wanted command and did not get selected, because the difference between you and those who didn't get selected is not very much. Because there are a lot of other lieutenant colonels who are ready and willing and able, and they missed it by a tenth of a point on a board or something, right? Mm-hmm. Command it for them, too. And I don't know, that's how I live my life. That's powerful words. Certainly, um, I, I, I will take them all to heart personally. Uh, and use them going forward. I know this is kind of a, a odd question, but do you know the total number of people you lost under your command? I do, and I never share that. And here's why: um, towards the end of my command, I, you know, all of us have to do all the generals. We have to do. Uh, we have to do um, Pentagon news conferences, right, where we stand in front of a blank screen over there in Iraq, and we get to have a whole host of people ask us all kinds of questions, and they're sitting in the Pentagon, and during that Pentagon news conference, I got asked that, you know, how many how many uh, soldiers did I lose? And I said, I, I am not going to answer that for you. And they said, well, why not? And I said, well, because if I give you a number and you know that I have 20,000 soldiers in my command, you're going to do the math and say, well, my goodness, that's great, because it's going to be in the 90 percentile, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, that's great. And I'm going to say it's not great if that one if one soldier belonged to you, your loss was a hundred percent. And so, to me, with every single loss, the way I framed it was, some family just had a hundred percent loss. I, I, you know, going into Iraq, I had some personal goals, you know, that I, only I knew about, and you know, certainly one of those was to absolutely absolutely minimize the loss of our soldiers. Realistically, going into Iraq into combat for a year with 20,000 soldiers, I kind of realistically know the chances of us coming out without losing anybody would be just miraculous. Next to zero. Yeah, Yeah, right? I mean, 
because we, we're such a huge command and we're all over the roads and we're all over the country. So, and, you know, and one of my other ones was I, I absolutely wanted not one loss of life to be because of suicide. And, and I am very proud to say that we did not lose one soldier because of suicide. Um, That's and that awesome. was a big thing for me because, you know, it's just a, it's, it's, it's bad enough when you lose to the real enemy, but to lose to suicide is so hard. So, Anyhow, but um, so I don't I don't share those numbers. I'm sure they probably go out there and find it somewhere, but I just don't share it because I also went to a lot of memorial services for, you know, I I, I was a commander of Balad, with thirty thousand people on that base. You know, we had lots of core units there, and I can remember coming out of a memorial service for one of our uh, Samoan uh, soldiers, and as soon as I came out of of the memorial service. You know, my guys met me and said, "Ma'am, we, you know, two more soldiers were just killed at a checkpoint, and those soldiers didn't did not they were not part of the COSCOM, but they were part of the brigade that did security on our routes and outside roads that we used. And so, there's no way I wouldn't go to that memorial service, right? So, so you know, um, but it hit me when I came home that I'm I'm not so sure." A week went by that I didn't go to memorial service. That's just, and, I can't fathom that. I mean, uh, I, I, the handful I went to in my deployment, again, I was at the ground level on my first deployment. It was just, it, it felt like too many for the, the amount that I went to. Uh, and right. to, to, to have to do that on a weekly basis, it, it, it would gut some people. I, I think that's natural. I think either you, you become totally immune to it and you just stop going which I think would be like a defense mechanism, for, forgive my psych 101 analysis here, but or, or it just becomes so much emotionally that how do you continue to deal with that? I mean, I, I don't... And you said you made calls to parents and stuff. Like, how do you how do you pick up the phone and make that phone call? You just have to. You just have to. I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, and, and, it's, and that part doesn't get any easier. So with my unit, um, you know, I, I, let the, I let the family decide. You know, if it's... If it's harder for you that I stay in touch, then please just tell me because I won't stay in touch. And there are many that just really don't want you to stay in touch. They just want to get on with their lives, right? But there's a handful that do want me to do that. And then I have to, you know, then I go, well, you know what? Um, you know, like there's two families that I send flowers to every every year. Well, then it struck me that, well, maybe they maybe they wouldn't like, maybe, they, maybe that's actually hard for them. So I just flat out asked them, you know. And it used to be that they had... Um, the Gold Star family, um, once a year, all the Gold Star families would come to uh, Washington, D.C., and there was a big memorial, and, and it was a very healing thing for the families, you know, to be able to, because that's a common bond that they all had. They lost someone, you know. Uh, they stopped having them because um, under the president at the time, I guess it was a not-for-profit, so it was one of those deals where if, you let, if, you, if the government supports one not-for-profit that is they have to support all, so they, so they canceled having those memorials in D.C., which I thought was terrible because of, of all the ones that should be out there is if, if you've given your life for this country, I, I think we could probably make a, a waiver on that. But So I went to it twice, um, but it was it's just gut-wrenching. And it does, you know, when you say it takes an emotional toll, uh, I'm sure it does, uh, but I think it also keeps you real and it keeps you... Uh, connected. Um, it, it, I don't stay real connected to the army in terms of, you know, I'm not out there uh, 
you know, lobbying and all that kind of stuff. Where I where it keeps me connected is for the health of our military. You know, I do a lot with chiropractic and and whole food nutrition and PTS and the Brain Treatment Center in California to try to help uh, veterans and active duty to be healthier about uh, their lives because I do know that it does take an emotional toll, and if you have an emotional toll, you have a physical toll, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's kind of my interaction of how I, I've used this experience to try to help other people. Um, because we do all deal with it differently, and as you well know. Um, and, and, and again, some of it's out of a sense of responsibility. I mean, there's no way, that, there's, not, there's not one part of you that wants to go to a memorial service. Not one part of you, you know. Um, but, you, but it's something that I think as a leader and as a commander was, but I must. I must, and I must show the soldiers that, we have to continue the mission. We have to mourn, and it's okay to cry, and it's okay to hug, but then we got to get back on that Humvee and back on that horse, and we got to get out and continue the work that we are here for. And we can't do it by ourselves. We need to do it together. And so there's a, there is a strength that should come also from that. And then, and then it always, for me, it always goes back to an honoring that life. That's the reason why I had my, just before I retired, I had my driver go, engrave all these dog tags, um, you know, and, I, and it's not like I have 50 dog tags, okay? I have, I have dog tags where there are lines, you know, the name, the date, all, and the rank. So there's lots of lines on each side of the dog tags. But, you know, I carry those with me because I don't want to forget because that's the greatest fear that parents have. You know, I've had parents tell me, Becky, we will never forget, but our fear is that this nation will forget. I said, I can't speak wow. for the nation. I can only speak for me, and I will not forget. And I will carry these dog tags with me. You and, know, uh, when you say that, it just it's it's saddening, but it's so real. You know, yeah. I, I I can't imagine being a as a parent. You know, the the loss of a child in and of itself, but the idea that the nation would forget them it, it, that that is scary because then I think that's when parents feel a sense of what was the purpose. What, what, if everybody's going to forget, what's the purpose? And I think that's really something that's hard to deal with. It is very, and that's why that's why you know when we when we decide, well, what not for profit should we donate to? Do your homework, right? Make sure that it's a not for profit that your money is going to help the you know the veteran, not pay a CEO or a staff or whatever. It should be going to help that veteran. I mean, do due diligence and. Make your money worth it. You know, make it count. Um, when I do my volunteer work or send my book out to not-for-profits just to give as gifts to, to veterans to try to help them, whatever it is, um, you know, but that's, that's how we honor our fallen, right? I mean, we, we, we cannot, um, we cannot, cannot forget them, and we, and we can't forget the ones who have experienced it. You know, right now I'm working with a friend that put a, a bill through Congress that's called No Hero Left Untreated. You know, just with the concept of um, that we want to make every every possible uh, resource available to our veterans, you know. Um, and it, it can't be just what you get at the VA. If there's, other, if there's other treatment out there that's available that's working, especially when it comes to suicide and PTS, then we ought to make it available. Uh, that's what we owe them. 
All right, so from somber thoughts to, to happier ones, uh, in January 2005, you find out you're going to get promoted to Brigadier General, or you get promoted. Uh, take me through the process of how you were notified, uh, what you were told, and you know, did you realize at the time that you were the first female graduate of West Point to become a general officer? How does that go down? Oh, that's pretty funny. Um, I, I, what, I wasn't tracking um, being first for West Point, so I, I, mean, I wasn't tracking that. But when I got promoted uh, early to colonel, I had received an email saying, hey, congratulations, you're going to be the first woman graduate to make colonel. And I went, oh, okay, well, whatever. Um, yeah, so I really wasn't, I, again, I wasn't tracking it. So, But because I knew I was the first woman to make colonel, you know, when I made general, I knew I was, I, I, then by default, I knew I was right. the first woman. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and my feeling about that was always, well, I know it now, you know, uh, but I, I, that's for other people to talk about. It's not for me to talk about. I mean, if you, you know, somebody wants to use that in an introduction, okay, got it. You know, it's in my bio, it's on Wikipedia, but I, I, I just don't go around, you know, telling everybody, oh, I don't know if you know, but you're talking to the first female graduate. <laughs> well, but I mean, yeah. you, you, you seem like in talking to you that nothing was really ever a surprise. Like for you, it was just a matter of fact moment. Oh, by the way, you're being picked up for general. Well, the, the being picked up was a little bit of a surprise. Um, you know, I mean, when you're in as long as we're in, you know, you kind of know you're being looked at. Right. right? Sure. Uh, but to me, well, you don't know you make it till somebody slaps it on, you know, slaps it in your hand and says you made it. So that still was a surprise. Um, my, I was working for a four-star general, and we'd had a Christmas party over at his house for the staff. And the party was over, and he says, I was his XO, and then he had the aide were there. We were working the party, right? We were, and so he says, hey, you two, uh, come in here. I want to talk to you about this party tonight. So we both thought we'd screwed something up. You know, we were like, oh, no, you know, didn't hand out the, the hors d'oeuvres right. But um, <laughs> so, so he says, wait right here. And he went and got his wife, and he brought his wife in. And I write about this in the book. And then all of a sudden he says, I have an announcement to make. And he stuck out his hand towards me, like he's going to shake my hand. And he says, guess who's going to be on the next Brigadier General list? So that in itself was a surprise. And what he'd done, he'd gone up to, and gotten off of his dress mess, his bouillon stars, you know, how he, he had four mm-hmm. individually sewn at the, on his cuff, and he just took a pair of scissors and cut one of them off. And um, so it still had the threads on it and everything. It was really cool. So I said, you know, well, can I tell my parents? He said, well, you can only tell your parents, but you can't tell anybody else because, you know, the, the list isn't officially released, but he'd been given notice. And um, so I said, oh, okay. So then when I went home for Christmas, I had that one star in a little box, and I said, oh, Mom, I forgot. I got something I want to give you. And she opened up the box. She was totally shocked and surprised. And, you know, but so, I mean, I was I was surprised. But, you know, the, the Army moved slowly. I mean, I think I, I found out in December – and then they didn't even release the list for a year. <laughs> wow! And, uh, so I was, you know, it, I think I think eighteen months after after he told me is when I actually got promoted is for pay. Yeah, I got to remember to tell you how that went because you know I was frock, I was frock going into Costcom. So I guess it was two years. Two years after he told me, I actually started getting paid. But I was already in my second general officer job. So Makes sense. <laughs> uh, 
All right, so uh, you end up retiring three years later. How did you know that it was time to go, or did the Army tell you it's time to go? Because sometimes you don't, get, you don't always get a choice. So three years later by pay, five years later by job. But, um, no, I've gotten ill with uh, chronic fibromyalgia, which is a muscular skeletal disease. Mm-hmm. So coming, um, coming out of Iraq, and then I went to be the chief of ordinance, um, I kind of thought maybe I could deal with the illness and still stay on active duty. Um, it was very difficult in combat, but I thought, well, when I come back to the state and I take command at Aberdeen, uh, maybe things will settle down. I mean, we are at least in a peaceful environment, um, trade-off and everything, but it, it really it, it got too much for me. I just knew that I had to put my retirement in and kind of wrap my arms around this disease called fibromyalgia uh, because I was only 49 years old and, you know, I mean, very young. And so uh, I put my my letter in to the two-star board saying that I was retiring. And then they came back and said, you're going to have to do better than that. Because <laughs> we're just going to ignore that letter. Um, and I said, okay. So I had to write another letter say, stating my, um, you know, my medical situation uh, so that they would not consider me for my second star. But, um, you know, and I think it was the right thing to do. It was very hard to do. Uh, I mean, I love the Army. I would have loved to continue to serve in, in, in any capacity. But, you know, it's, at the end of the day, it's not fair because, you know, you've been to the Ordnance Center School and you look up on the wall and you see your fellow teammates that are fellow generals. And only one of you is going to make a second star. You know, maybe one will make it, maybe none will make it, but we don't get many. And... You know, when I look up there and I see their faces and I grew up in the Army of almost three decades with all those people, I go, if I stay in and the Army chooses me and then my situation gets so bad that I have to leave, I've just robbed one of them of their opportunity to be a two-star even earlier. I mean, that's if I got selected, right? Mm-hmm. So I just decided that, you know, the right thing to do based on how, how horrible I felt was I needed to retire. And I, when I took my last PT test, my driver, Sergeant Tempowski, says, ma'am, you cannot retire. I mean, you do, you're, you're, you do circles around some of these other generals. I mean, just look at your PT test. And I said, well, here's the deal, Sergeant T. I know what I am capable of and what my potential is. And right now I am, I am not meeting that. So even though you might look at it that it's better than somebody else, it isn't as good as I can be. And you deserve the best of me as your leader. So I I have to figure this out. My grandmother lived to be 100, and I want to make 101. And so that's that's what I did. Wow. Certainly a wonderful sentiment, to say the least. So you get out and you move on to civilian life. The book is called 24-7, The First Person You Must Lead Is You. Uh, what was the impetus for writing it, and what do you want people to take from it? Well, as I have gone out in the corporate sector and spoken on leadership, and I, I tell stories. I'm a storyteller. And I hear a lot of stories about the men and women that I served with, you know, my, you know, the gentleman in charge of my uh, physical security in, in, in Iraq, you know, my driver. I mean, all, all these, you know, men and women that I served with. And so when I... When I get done, I mean, I only get to speak for 45 minutes or an hour, and then people will say, would come up to me and say, oh, you know, how can I learn more? I mean, tell me, please tell me you have a book. And I'd be like, no, I don't have a book, but I'm working on one. And so 
in order to be able to tell more stories and have more depth to the keynotes that I give, I finally just sat down and, and wrote this book. And, and that's what it is. It's, you know, 30 stories um, and with a lot of, I think, very relevant to what people deal with every day in the civilian world. And so I just took those stories and made it translatable to to others. And it's, it's gotten great feedback. I've been really happy about it. I mean, I self-published because I didn't want to go through all that. I didn't want somebody telling me what I could write or could not write or they like my title or they don't like my title. I just said, forget it. I'm going to self-publish. And I did that through Amazon. And I love giving the book away. So, as, you know, especially when it comes to veterans and not-for-profits and schools. Um, but the corporate sector has done a great job of you know, they buy the book when I speak, and um, and it's just been a lot of fun to see that uh, people realize that they're a work in progress. You know, I, I tell people I wrote the book to ignite people to action, that they assess their own life, their own strengths and weaknesses, and what could they do differently to be a better person, a better leader of their own life, because if they can be a little bit better, the rest of us benefit, right? Your family benefits, your community benefits, your workplace benefits, and that was my whole goal. And um, and so that was a lot of fun. And well, I get to tell stories about my soldiers. And that's kind of the stuff that, you know, obviously stays with you forever. I mean, everybody who's ever been in the military who's shared time, whether it's in combat or in peacetime with, with other soldiers, obviously there's a connection there. There's a, there's a brotherhood. There's a bond that I don't think yep. you find in any other – uh, corporate life, any other corporate environment whatsoever. So, uh, finally, my driver, I still stay in touch with him. He's, you know, he was a, a specialist and a sergeant when he drove for me. Now he's a, you know, he's an E seven, but he's in the reserves and he's a policeman in New Jersey. And you know, we talk on the phone. He goes, "Ma'am, you know, he just loves it. He's in the book." And I don't, by the way, I don't name anybody in the book because I didn't want anybody to be left out. So I tell the stories, but people's names are not in there except for one, which was uh, my soldier Sergeant Wachowski, who. Uh, was killed and then um, received the silver star and so and I and before I published my book I sent the book to his parents and said you know look um, here's how I'm doing this but I would I, I want your permission I want you to to know that this is how I want to honor him and continue to you know um, let people know of his sacrifice and he was he was the only silver star recipient in my command but um, but anyway, somebody, when I talk to my driver, you know, he just gets so excited, like, you know, hey, ma'am, I still use that story, too, and I tell people that story. It's called the cheeseburger story. But, you know, I use it with my soldiers at training and my, my, my policemen at work, and so it keeps you really connected. And, it, it you know, he, he, he on his own probably couldn't write a book and get the same level of reception, and so it's nice that I can do that. And, you know, there, there isn't anybody that I go out there, they don't know about my driver and the cheeseburger story, right? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, ma'am, your your career is something to be marveled at and something to be told just in and of itself. But uh, the, the way you've expressed it and the emotions and things that you've taught us throughout this uh, this episode of the podcast, I think people will will certainly want to look forward to the book and what's in it. And certainly uh, we, we thank you for everything that you've done, not only for our country, but uh, the, the way you continue to go out there and, and hope to change lives and make things for the better for people. I certainly uh, you know, tip my cap to you, but as uh, someone who still wears a uniform, I certainly salute you, ma'am, for everything that you've done, and we, we appreciate you being here. Well, thanks, Mark. And just remember, A, I salute you right back, and I thank you for your service, okay? And B, I, I, I've, I've looked at your podcast and listened, and, 
you know, you and I both know as officers, you know, who the real heroes are. And, you know, those those young men and women that are putting those muddy boots on the ground every single day. And so for you to even interview me with the other folks that you have interviewed who are, you know, multiple deployed times, you know, three, four, five times and Silver Star and all these other things, um, I, I mean, I, it's humbling to even be really in their presence. And I've always felt that about my soldiers. And uh, so I appreciate what you're doing to bring their stories to life for people uh, so they can really understand the, the sacrifices that they and their families have made, okay? So I appreciate what you do. No, thank you. Brigadier General Retired, Becky Hall said, amazing thoughts. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.